you know, I, I hesitate to make this claim, but I do actually think it's a uniquely human thing. You know, a, a dolphin isn't sitting there thinking about the infrared sense of a rattlesnake. A rattlesnake isn't like musing about the echolocation of a bat. A bat's not thinking about what my dog sniffs on the street. I get to think about all of that. And that's, it, that to me, it feels like a gift to me to be able to, to sort of move past the, the biological limits of my own senses to think about what other animals are experiencing. And, and in part, like the argument of the book is that's actually a very magical and deeply human ability that we shouldn't squander. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Hey everyone, it's officially spring. The crocuses are pushing up here in Brooklyn and we are in a springy mood. And today we are kicking off a series of interviews that explore our relationships to the world around us. No better person to start with than Ed Young, a staff writer at The Atlantic and a prolific science writer and reporter. His first book, I Contain Multitudes, was about the world of microbes and the fact that our bodies are teeming with millions and millions of these little organisms that most of us don't know anything about. He interrupted work on his second book to report on the COVID pandemic, really, really incredible work for which he won a Pulitzer Prize. And now he's getting ready to release that second book. It's titled An Immense World. And it's about the way that animals perceive the world and what we can learn from those perceptions. I found it a really joyous read, uh, really just a delight from front to back. And I've noticed myself looking around at my environment and especially at my dog kind of differently since finishing it. Ed came on to talk about the driving curiosities behind his work and about the dog that turned his life upside down while he was writing this book, his corgi named Typo. In January of 2021, um, I got a pandemic puppy. Um, he is a corgi. Um, his name is Typo, um, which is, um, you know, a very obvious journalist, uh, journalist dog name. Um, he's, uh, he's Typo for short and he's typography when he's being bad. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we, we got him in January, um, about, so that was nine months into reporting about the pandemic. Um, it was, um, at the start of the second phase of my book leave when I was writing, um, An Immense World, this book about the sensory experiences of other animals. Um, I had never had a pet before, um, so Typo was not only my first dog, but the first animal I, I really had in my first non-human animal I really had in my life, um, uh, and yeah, it was a um, it was a gigantic leap into the unknown at a time when we had already made quite substantial leaps into the unknown. My wife Liz and I have been talking about um, maybe getting a dog for a long time. Um, she had um, she had two corgis um, in a past life, um, and and was really missing having animals around. Um, I uh, I as I said had had never had pets before, um, but 
was sort of intrigued by it. Um, and it, you know, I, I think I recognized the, um, the hole in, in Liz's life that was, um, that existed because of the lack of an animal around. Um, and it, you know, it, and it felt like, um, an interesting adventure. Now in, in hindsight, um, was it the best idea to try and raise a puppy after nine months of harrowing reporting when I had half a book to write? It may not have been the smartest decision I ever made, but um, but you know I I have no regrets now, and I love the kid, and he's he's a delightful bundle of joy. But it was I, I may not I would probably not recommend to other people to to execute exactly that timing. So what happened when you brought him home? Um, uh, he was, um, so on the first night, um, I think the first night summarized like sort of what the, the, the first months of, of raising a puppy were like, um, in that, he uh, smelled really bad. Um, <laughs> he he basically slept on my pillow, so I was sort of forced down to like in a sort of crunched up position at the, the bottom half of the bed. Um, and then the first thing he did when he woke up in the morning was pee on the bed. <gasps> oh that, no! That said, um, he also did this immensely cute thing when he was very very tiny when his where like his snores sounded like lasers um they sounded like a little like just tiny little lasers firing out of his nostrils um and it was it was deeply adorable um so that that like tension of um intense aggravation and also like uh like deep adoration was um was very much like the hallmark of those first few months I mean, uh, my next question was going to be how did how did typo change your life? But it sounds like that was a that was a pretty abrupt, <laughs> a pretty abrupt and immediate change. How did yeah. it uh, unfold? Um. So, you know the, um. I think raising <laughs> raising a puppy is hard. It was harder than I anticipated and and probably it was harder for me than for Liz because she had experience with with dogs before and and I did not so you know there are um getting used to things like the biting puppy teeth are really sharp uh the barking is very loud like all, all of these things that I think were unfamiliar to me as a like dog naive person uh and took um a lot of getting used to the uh, I mean, one one um one lovely intersection between that and the rest of my life was that, um, you know, I had been writing this book about how other animals perceive the world um, and the very different ways in which they sense the world to us. And and just having um, a dog in my home um, really brought those differences to um, to light in a very personal way. Um, you know, it's sort of one thing to write about it in the abstract and another to really see it um, at, at work, um, you know, in, in right in front of you. Um, 
I had I'd actually written um, the chapter on smell. Um, that was the first chapter of the book that I'd written, and the first section of that chapter, the first scene, was about dogs and the way they smell the world. So that was actually the, the first thing I wrote for the book. Um, and you know, I talked to uh, a um, scientist and wonderful writer named Alexander Horowitz. Um, who studies and thinks about the ways in which dogs smell the world? Um, you know, she she writes beautifully about how dogs live in this this um, olfactory landscape um, that that smell is so primary to them as as a sense, um, and in ways that um, humans often don't take into consideration. She told me um, about how she takes her dogs specifically on sniff walks um, to allow them the chance to explore the world with their noses at their own pace. So, you know, a lot of dog owners walk their dogs to a specific destination. You know, you're hurrying the dog along, you're pulling the dog along. If the dog stops to sniff something, you're pulling the dog away. And um, Alexandra's view was that this is Sort of denying dog um, one of its primary means of experiencing the world, um, and so fr- from the start we tried to do that with Typer. We tried to let him, um, you know, at least once a day, um, if not more, have um, control over like his outdoor experience. So we're not going to a specific place; we're just walking around. He dictates the pace of it. If he wants to stop and sniff, he gets to stop and sniff, um, and. And that's been a sort of wonderfully enriching experience. I think it, it was, um, it allowed us to um, really get a sense of things um, through his nose. Um, you know, we, it, it, it's, it's, it's still um, wonderful and amazing to me when we, when we walk along just a random stretch of, um, of sidewalk. And, um, you know, he'll be trundling along happily and then just grind to a screeching halt and start investigating a part, a part of the, um, a part of the pavement that, you know, looks, looks like every other, um, part of the pavement. It, it you know, visually, there's nothing there. That, you know, to, to us, like olfactorily, there's nothing there. And yet there's something that has just grabbed his attention so hard, um, that, you know, he, his mind has dropped everything else. And, it's wonderful watching him, um, you know, sniff other dogs um, at our dog, the dog park we go to. It's wonderful watching him um, explore with his nose with this just extraordinary delicacy. You know, he he explores like if you watch closely, like he'll he'll sniff out like every leaf on a plant. You know, he'll he'll sniff like along a twig. Um, he'll sniff at like edges uh, and boundaries where air flows between one space or another um and uh he'll it, there's clearly this like landscape around the world that he is privy to and that i am not and that just watching him behave and engage with the world um it shows me that there's like that there is um like wander in the everyday and um, unfamiliar in the mundane, and that's also what an immense world is about. It's about like trying to to show people that there is this um, <laughs> immense world, this greater, um, this sort of 
you know, greater majesty to nature that, that we're aware of. And I think typo shows me that like every day. So you're saying you were already at work on this book um, before you got typo. What had drawn you to this as your as your book idea? Clearly, it was something you were interested in before you had it. This this beautiful example of it in your house making laser snores. Snores. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So I had been um, writing about lots of different biological topics uh, for many years. Um, and I had written about um, the senses of other animals uh, for a long time, you know, not as a like, singular obsession, but as just part of the, the body of work I produced. Um, and, but I'm not sure I would have um, actually thought to write a book about it were it not for um, a specific conversation that I had with um, Liz, my, my wife. Um, I think it was at the end of um, 2018. Um, so we were in a, we were in a London cafe. Um, it was rainy outside. It was cold. Um, it was in the winter. In the winter, I tend to get um, kind of morose and self-flagellating and so like as as is fairly normal i was um bemoaning to liz that uh like <laughs> my career had peaked i was out of ideas like well the well of inspiration had run dry uh you know i had uh, nothing left to offer and uh, especially had no ideas specifically for a second book um and that i wasn't sure what like all these years of writing about um you know weird animal behavior uh was was sort of amounting to when there were like big pressing societal problems at foot around us um and uh liz very patiently listened to me and then pointed out um and and then gave this like beautiful speech about um why it still matters um, to think about the natural world and to show people what it actually is like, the full, um, the full extent of it. Um, and you know, she she talked. Liz actually um, works in science communication now, but started off as a marine biologist, and she studied the visual systems, uh, the the the, um, the the ways in which reef fish, um, coral reef fish, perceive colours. Um, and she was talking about um, you know, the senses of animals as, as one of these examples of how um, uh, tuning into um, the fullness of nature like enriches our own experiences and why that kind of work matters. And basically said, you should write a book about that. And Liz is incredibly wise, and I try and listen to her whenever I can. So I did. Um, and and she was right. Um, she She's usually right um the the um i do think that um i do think that this this matters um you know i, I think that at, especially at a time when um so much um of the natural world is imperiled um it does make it does matter to tell people um you know just how exquisite and how vast it is um even the parts of it that we we think are familiar you know i've sort of made this argument already and i i, I make it throughout the book that um 
the sensory worlds of other animals are worth knowing about for their own sake because they show us how broad our own world and how you know how how broad the world around us really is and how limited our experience of it really is like this book is a, a um, you know a call to a sort of radical form of empathy like to to really try and step outside our shoes and to to um, think about the experiences of um, creatures that are very different to us and I think that there is tremendous value and, and purpose in that. particular frame came about, this concept of, forgive me if I botched the pronunciation here, of umwelt. Yes. Of, uh, <laughs> could you, uh, exp- you'll explain better than I will what, what that is. And I'm curious why that, this idea, which you're talking about, what became the central idea, this, this idea of radical empathy, of understanding the other experience of the world. Right. So, um, the, 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 the umwelt concept is that, um, there is a huge amount of information out there, stimuli of like sights and sounds and you know textures and um, and smells um, that uh, that a creature could conceivably perceive, but that every um, animal, every species, arguably every individual, is only really tapping into a small sliver of that. That that you know that it's only getting a very thin slice of that full sensory experience. Um, and that's the umwelt. So, you know, the, the umwelt of a, you know, my umwelt involves, uh, you know, the, the visible spectrum uh, from red to violet, uh, a, the, the umwelt of um, the pigeons sitting outside my window um, extend beyond that into the ultraviolet. Um, you know, the, the um, typo's umwelt um, is narrower. Um, he sees a few, a smaller range of colors than I do, but his umwelt also includes a wider range of smells than I do, um, you know what he hear. He hears sounds at, at, um, at a different range of frequencies. Um, so it, it's the the idea is that um, we each tap into a small and distinct slice of the total amount of information out there, um, which means that. Um, and you know this is the the first scene in the book. Like you could imagine yourself in a space with a lot of different creatures, like an elephant, a rattlesnake, a, a robin, a spider, um, and you would all be in the same physical space, but you would have radically different experiences of that space. Um, and you know, I I think that that's the that's the central concept of the book because everything else flows from there like exploring to explore those sensory worlds to talk about what other animals are experiencing and and feeling and and sensing you know requires you to understand that those differences exist and and i think we we forget that sometimes you know part of the Part of the reason why, for example, like dog owners pull their dogs away from like sniffing stuff or, or, you know, think that like sniffing other dogs is gross is because we're mapping this human sensorium, this, this human umbelt onto that of the creatures around us. And we're, we're doing that misguidedly because we sort of assume that they have the same sensory worlds as we do. Um, like, I think exploring those sensory worlds is for a start, like extremely cool. 
Um, you know, it is fascinating to me to think about um, fish that can sense electric fields, um, you know, migratory birds that can sense the magnetic field of the earth. Um, it's amazing to me to think about um, the, you know, an, an albatross flying over a featureless ocean, but being able to like perceive this landscape of smells that are rising from the sea and finding food or home in that way. It's amazing to think about, um, uh, you know, a, a bird, like a, a pigeon or a starling, um, you know, something really familiar. Uh, and the idea that it could um, sense an order of magnitude more colors than we do, that there are entire colors that we can, you know, we, we, we wouldn't even have a name for and, and can't perceive that um, uh, that these creatures around us are sort of tapping into all the time. Uh, you know, I think that's, you know, at... at 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 the very least, that's really fascinating. But I think there's also something like, deeper and more profound here. Um, the um, the reason why ombelts exist at all is that, um, firstly, no organism can conceivably tap into all the information there is to perceive. Um, you, know, you you would need like an infinitely large nervous system. Nervous systems cost energy to run. You know you can only fuel so much um, cognitive power um, because we're limited by the amount of energy we can take in. So um, there are there are sort of biological limits, um, but we're also limited by like evolutionary necessity. Like each organism perceives the umwelt that it gets because that's what it needs to perceive. You know, I, I don't, I am not walking around needing to um, sense the ultrasonic frequencies that a bat or a dolphin can hear. And so I don't, um, you know, so our, our history, our ancestry um, constrains us to this very thin sector of the world. And, which means that it must be an active choice to learn about the rest, um, and and that to me is a, like a deeply um, a, a kind of deeply magical and, and profound idea that um, you know that our our like billions of years of uh, history have left us. Um, with this narrow view of the world that is well suited to our needs, but we get to we we can choose to go beyond that. We can choose to um, to to transcend our own limits um, and to think about parts of the um, experience available to us that, that we don't normally tap into. And that's a you know I I hesitate to make this claim, but I do actually think it's a uniquely human thing. You know, a, a dolphin isn't sitting there thinking about the infrared sense of a rattlesnake. A rattlesnake isn't like musing about the echolocation of a bat. A bat's not thinking about what my dog sniffs on the streets. I get to think about all of that. I get to know about all of that. Um, and that's it, that to me, it feels like a gift to me to be able to to sort of move past the the biological limits of my own senses to think about what other animals are experiencing and and in part like the argument of the book is that's actually a very magical and deeply human ability that we shouldn't squander yeah i i really felt uh i really felt the the coolness you're describing like it's just so immensely cool knowing right. knowing these things about other species and 
and that there is a that there is something special about our ability to inquire to find out and then to imagine all these these different umwelts um to go back to to typo for a second how did i mean i i you have told me how he changed your sleep how did he change and be a, how did he change the book as you as you learned to live with this other umwelt in your house mm, yeah um <laughs> well, uh, at, at a very, um, at a very basic level, he provided some, um, some much needed transitions between a few chapters that were sort of sitting next to each other without like any cork between them. Um, and, uh, it, it turned out one very easy way of solving that problem is to reach for whatever your dog is doing and slide it into the book. So he's, <laughs> he's there. Um, weirdly, he's not actually in the bit about dogs and smelling at all. He's, he's there, um, in a couple of places, um, he's he's in um, he's in a section on vision where I think about the, the types of colors that he senses. Um, he's in uh, I think the uh, the chapter on vibrations where I talk about how you know as a puppy. Um, I, I spent a lot of time sitting on the floor of my um, of my flat playing with him, um, which is not a place that I really spent much time at all before. And, and suddenly, like you know, you 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 sit on the ground and you're some you you know you're much more aware of like cars driving past, um, you know, the, like footsteps from from the neighbors below. Um, it, it it was a um, it was a good reminder that um, you know just by just by by dint of lowering yourself a few feet, um, you can tap into this um, th- this different sensory experience and what you're used to. Um, so yeah, like so, type is there in the books. He makes he makes several cameos. Um, he's he also the 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 planning for the book was well underway before we got him um, and a lot of that didn't change you know the, the book was half written it was fully structured but i think he i think to me he he was a personal um exem he was a personal reminder like a, just a beautiful exemplar of all the themes that um that i had been writing about the in the book like he made the the ideas in the book more real to me and i think the ideas in the book made him more real to me I also have a dog and got her when she was, I don't know, six months old. And the adjustment that you have to make to this new creature living in your house that that has experiences uh, and rationales that are completely anathema and confusing to you. There is like such an adjustment that has to be made. Um, And I've only ever lived with dogs i've never had cats or lizards mm-hmm. or anything else and i imagine they have their own of course they have their own things um but the it, it feels almost like a neurological adjustment you make to mm-hmm. accommodate this new uh this new creature this new part of your of your home life um who you're now sort of partnered with in a way and it it sounds like it must be so cool to get to do that while you're researching this the science of not just how other animals experience the world but how we can come to understand that about them yeah it 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 was um you know i i think like i i found um 
I found the early months of puppy parenting difficult. Like I was already in a, in a very um, uh, stressful. I was in a very um, burned out place, um, and you know this uh, like adding lack of sleep and and all, all the sort of unfamiliarity of, of owning a pet for the first time on top of that was was challenging. Um, but I think you know I I, I sort of hope that. Um, thinking about this topic and writing about the book made me a, a, a better puppy parent than I would have been otherwise. Because I think it, it does force you to think about, to to really grapple with the idea that, like, you know, you, you've not, it's not like you've just brought a furry human into your house, right? You brought this completely different creature that that not only has like a different cognition, you know, I think we, we, we're sort of used to the idea that, um, that that animals think in different ways than we do, but but really has just is just so fundamentally different in his in his perception of the world um, that um, you, you you know you you have to take that into account um, when when interacting with him. Like um, I think one of the hardest things to to learn when you do this for the first time is to to not sort of map human expectations onto the animal to to like. To um, you know, to to think about his behavior and his needs through um, through what he is um, and and through how he experiences the world. Um, so yeah, it, um, you know, I talked about this this um, how this kind of radical empathy is um, is part is core to the book, and I've tried to internalize that um, you know as the as the custodian of this delightful. Um, Goofus. <laughs> can you well, give me? In charge of. Yeah. Can you give me an example of just a thing that you were maybe first inclined to see through the lens of your own human framework and came to understand differently as you came to understand his his mind better? Um. Yes. <laughs> I mean, this is sort of a dumb example, but but like he so, um, like I've had um, I've I've like experienced other like I've I've been around other dogs before. I've been around like friend dogs from of like I've been around friends and family members' dogs, um, and a lot of the dogs that I, I'm used to are like kind of snuggly, right? Like they 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 um they curl up next to you on a sofa and they put their head on your lap and it's it's a wonderful experience um typo is not that right he's a high energy dog he's like corgis are a herding breed he wants jobs to do and he likes like you know getting into shenanigans um when he's bored and like i think one specific way this this manifests is it like if i'm like if i'm feeling very low um, which to be honest, I have been a lot trying to report on the pandemic for a couple of years. Um, what I really want is for my dog to come and snuggle me and, you know, be like this emotional support animal, but that's not really who he is. It's not how he's wired. So like, if I feel really low, Typo will come up and want like want to play like he'll want to he'll want to tug or you know he'll want to run around um at one at one point last year i was literally sitting at the edge of the sofa like with my head in my hands um in like you know this 
doldrum of despair. And Typo's reaction to that was to jump at my face. (laughs) (laughs) You know, which I sort of interpret now as like, um, I I don't know, like, you know, at the risk of grossly anthropomorphizing my dog, but why not? Um, Like, I, I sort of think of that as, oh, dad, you're feeling down. Um, you know, like when I feel down, it really helps me to, you know, to play tug or to like to to romp around. Like that's sort of, I think that's that's how. Um, right. Let's do joy well, stuff. Let's do joy <laughs> stuff. Right. Like I, I think I think his bond, like his his like means of um, of showing affection, is to do exactly that, which is which is really not what I what I need in that moment, but. Um, you know that, but I think it's a, it really it helps her. It like that only clicked in like quite late, um, and I think it really helped to to sort of understand why there is that discrepancy um, there. And this that's not like an umvelt stuff, an an umvelt thing, but um, it does flow from this idea of trying to think about like how how the dog is wired um, rather than like what I need. Okay, let's let's get into burnout and workload if we can a little <laughs> bit. Sure. This, as you are saying, is... I mean, it's just a huge amount of research and reporting. And I, when I was reading it, like I I said to you sort of before we got into this, I was just astounded that this was something you had done on top of the really kind of relentless pace of excellent and in fact, Pulitzer Prize winning reporting you were doing on the pandemic. Uh, How, how did how did that work? How did you, how did you do that? Uh, it how sounds like it was. It work? sounds like it was really hard. Um, y- yes, uh, it it was really hard. Um, I sometimes, you know, <laughs> yeah. So, um, w- one answer is that um, actually the bulk of the the book work was done before the pandemic even started. So, you know, I, I had done a lot of reporting trips in twenty nineteen. I had fully structured the book. I, I knew what like at least what like the the major themes in the chapters were i had written um half of the book before i um decided to uh, before um both my my wife again being very wise and the atlantic suggested that i should maybe come back and report on this here pandemic that seemed like a big thing um so you know when i when i um when in the in the period when the pandemic was actually happening, um, I only had half a book to write and I took four months off at the start of 2021 to finish that, that period. That's also when we, we got typo. Um, I, <laughs> I joked at the time that, um, it says a lot about what covering COVID is like that the prospect of taking time off to write a book half a book in four months felt like you know going to a spa um, <laughs> it's perhaps the only thing that could make 
book writing, you know, uh, feel like a restorative activity. Book writing, a famously rejuvenating thing for <laughs> for writers to do, um, <laughs> you know, and and yet that it 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 really did feel like that at the time. Um, it was it was. A, a ludicrous amount of work and it was a ludicrous amount of work like especially given that you know every like my wife and i were taking like hour-long shifts to like play with the dog um like one of us would play with the dog the other one would then get some work done merc- like mercifully every now and then he would fall asleep for about half an hour and then you know repeat ad infinitum and somehow i wrote half a fucking book in that way and it was fine like it was you know the puppy raising bit was fine it was hard the book writing bit actually was joyful and um uh and and did feel restorative it felt it felt great to to slip into this um this mind space that was all about awe and wonder and joy um rather than the the pandemic mind space which was the exact opposite of all those things um like in retrospect um it it it's been sort of easy to forget that there have been moments. Um, there were moments towards the end of um, twenty twenty one when, like, when I was fe- when I was feeling incredibly burned out again, where I thought, I like, I can't believe I feel this terrible considering I took four months off at the start of the year and then had to remember, like, no, 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 no. Those four months were not an actual holiday. You spent that time writing a book and raising a puppy, um, and also and also guest editing the best American science and nature anthologies. That that was another thing that happened in that time that I sometimes forget about. Um, oh boy! Not to what, mention just being a person in the in the world this year of our Lord twenty twenty one as it was. Right. Like that was yes. all by itself a little bit of a, a stressful event for most people. Yes, that that is that is also true. I do also forget that 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 is a part of it. <laughs> so um what's the I'm trying to think of I'm I want to ask a question without it sounding like I'm teasing you I'm asking it with like a real no, earnestness it, because I have the same I I have uh, a milder version of of this personality quirk you're describing um it sounds like you for you lose your reference point for for what? what um what exertion maybe feels like or what reasonable workloads could feel mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. um when you're far down the rabbit hole of that um maybe i shouldn't be using animal metaphors in in this episode but <laughs> no let's go on. Let, we, we we declare a, we declare an episode wide amnesty on on inappropriate animal metaphors okay thank I, you i struggled with this while writing the book too so i sympathize and cast no aspersions on anyone else for doing so oh, i appreciate it okay so when you're when you're pretty far gone in that state um how do you how do you but how do you get done everything that you need to do? Is it just a lot of, you know, being headbutted by the corgi while you <laughs> hold your head in your hands or what, what, what happens? What does it look like at your house? Right. There's a, there is, there is certainly some of that. Um, um, as, as much as I am prone to be unkind to myself in terms of taking too much on, I'm also pretty good about 
like I'm very, very good about meeting deadlines. I've, I've always, in, in some ways, filing this book, um, this book was either the, was conceived. So in some ways, this book was the first deadline that I've ever missed because I took nine months off my actual book leave to finish it, um, to, to write about the pandemic while that was happening. Um, but like, I'm, I'm a reasonable good judge, reasonably good judge of my time. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do take on a lot, but I, but I also get that stuff done. Um, I think over the course of the, um, over the course of the pandemic and especially, um, in the, uh, in the last year and a bit, um, I have tried to be kinder to myself in terms of what I like, just the amount of work that I expect myself to, to be able to churn out. I think, um, part of the problem in the first year was just, um, you know, running at like seventh gear constantly, um, because it felt like this, um, it felt like everything was, incredibly urgent like every piece needed to be finished two weeks ago um it was an emergency non-stop right exactly um and you know i i argue that that is still the case but i um i think i came back to the second bout of pandemic writing understanding that i could not sustain the same pace that i did in 2020 and that doing so would just would just wreck me um so you know, I, with that being said, I still like, I still wrote a lot of pandemic features, um, you know, but like I'm now running in like fifth gear and as opposed to, as opposed to sixth. Um, so that helps a bit. Um, I think that the, like the challenge now is, is a little different. Um, the, and the, the reasons why the work is is hard um, is a little different. I think that um, uh, the more that um, the world at large decides that the pandemic is over, which is not, um, and that we should move past it, um, the more I'm driven to try and tell the stories of the people who have been left behind in that Um uh the um so you know especially in the last half year i've written a lot of pieces about healthcare workers and and the burnout they're feeling um i've written about long haulers um who are still struggling with covid symptoms i've written about immunocompromised people who feel abandoned in this rush to normal i've now you know i've written one piece and now we're in a second about people who are still grieving who've lost people to covid um I think those are the stories that matter the most to me right now. I think they're the ones that will do the most good in some ways. They're an instantiation of that um, premise of radical empathy that, that sustain that um, that is central to to my book. Um, but they're also um, incredibly draining. Um, I think it is. Like obviously, it's not 
it's not worse for me than it is for any of the people I'm writing about, but I think bearing witness to that much suffering um, while being a, a profound and important thing we can do is also incredibly hard. And so there's this like weird cycle now of um, I know I'm burned out and I don't have a lot of like emotional bandwidth to give. Um, so I want to use whatever reserves I have left to do the kinds of stories that will do the most good and that will be the most meaningful to people who most need it right now. Um, but those same stories are also the most, um, you know, emotionally devastating and, and mentally exhausting. Um, and so round and round we go and I don't know where, where, um, where that cycle ends, but I think it continues as long as I have energy to sustain it, um, which I uh, sort of do now. Um, I mean, I'm still doing it, so clearly... That wasn't uh, the most convincing version of that <laughs> sentence I've ever heard. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> Uh, I don't know who I'm trying to convince here. You, the listeners, myself, uh, but clearly I'm failing on really Your three editor, out of three there. Should right, they be listening right. to this? Right. No, I think it's reasonable and healthy to express doubts. This is a, this is what you, the work that you have been doing reporting on this pandemic is, is very, very extractive, very, very difficult. And I think it's uh, kind of important to be honest about that. Yeah. What you're talking about now with regards to your reporting on the pandemic, echoes something that I was thinking about while I was reading your book, which is that there is all this really incredible, emotional, wondrous material that's happening with the backdrop of horror and tragedy, right? Like the, this mm -hmm. book, um, An Immense World, is so full of just amazing, fascinating, joyful delights, right? And it, and it is also set against the backdrop of a mass extinction event um, yeah. that that is being wrought in the Anthropocene. Yeah. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to hear you talk about figuring out how to balance that delight and horror on the page. And maybe it sounds like figuring out how to balance that in, in your, your, I don't know, mind and self as a writer is, is an ongoing project, but how do you think about balancing that for, for a reader? Uh, that is a fantastic question. Um, so uh, from, from the very beginning, um, I knew that part of covering the sense. So if I was writing a book about the senses of other animals, I have to talk about sensory pollution about this idea that we're actually disrupting the lives of animals by flooding the world with light and with sound and with other stimuli that they, they're not accustomed to and that is harming them um you know it's a, it's a sort of invisible form of pollution that's um very different to like smoke uh, you know toxins blowing out of a, a smokestack but is no less pernicious and no less harmful um the question of how to do that was actually one that I wrestled with for, for some time. Um, and 
as you've seen in the book and, and as people will, will see in a few months, like the, the solution was to put a chapter at the end about this problem that you, I, I build up through 13 chapters of how animals sense the world, like a, a tour of all the different senses. And then it ends with this um, slight gut punch um, that says like, and because of everything you've just read, a lot of, a lot of the world is now in danger. Um, but I think it was it was really important to me to um, to not um, to not sugarcoat this. You know, we we are living through a mass extinction event. Um, the same natural history documentaries I've talked about have been criticised for you know um, providing this um, you know I don't know like this kumbaya version of nature that doesn't grapple with the fact that everything you're seeing is in quite substantial and immediate peril. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that's not only, um, an erasure of the problem, but it's a, it's the loss of an opportunity. You know, if these, like I said, these, these, um, this book, these shows provide a fantastic opportunity to really show people the stakes, like what we stand to lose. And to me, like what we stand to lose is not just, uh, a species, although, also, although that would be tragic in itself, but it's an entire way of knowing the world. Um, you know, if, if every animal has its own umbelt, then the loss of every species creates a gap in the possibility of knowledge, like in the space of experience. Um, and, and, and I think that's, you know, it's not more tragic, but it adds a layer to, to, um, to what we stand to lose. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week. <laughs>